Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. I just want to intro Ty Lamb. Um, Ty has been a friend of Brad's, a friend of our ministry for like 10 years. It's been a good long time. Um, I remember times back when we were at our Pioneer building, Ty coming and teaching us all about partnership development so that we as missionaries here at the prayer room could learn just a valuable, valuable system and way in which building relationships and reaching out to people to um, fund us as missionaries and join our partnership team. Um, that's kind of my, my first beginnings of, of getting to know you and, and just realizing like the brilliance that this man carries. He's a brilliant, brilliant man, and he loves Jesus so passionately. Um, Ty is a leader up at IHOP Kansas City. He leads and runs uh, the Luke 18 Project, which is a college ministry um, on the college campuses in Kansas City, all about sharing the gospel, getting, he carries a heart for college kids and getting them saved, getting them discipled. Um, he's been doing that for years and years, back when he was in California and now in Kansas City. Um, and so we are blessed. We are so blessed to have you with us tonight, Ty. Um, and as Sean was saying, we're few tonight, but but we know, we I know I'm counting myself blessed to have you here with us and be able to hear from you. So come on up um, and um, yeah, just, Share what the the Lord has on your heart, and thank you for being here with us. Thanks, Castlin. Good to see you guys. Greetings. Happy Saturday night. Um, Just got into Dallas not too long ago. Um, We've been on an extended um, four-week-and-change road trip. We started in Kansas City and headed west from there to, uh, we went to Colorado Springs for a few days, through um, through Salt Lake City, Sacramento. We were up in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area for about 10 days, five days in Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego, and then headed east from there to to Phoenix, Albuquerque, spent a day in San Antonio. We just were in Austin five days, and then we're here for about a week. And so, um, so, so we haven't seen home in a little bit. Kansas City's, you know, it's been a month since we've been in Kansas City, but I'm currently working on support raising. So trying to practice the things that, that I've helped others do. Um, but um, yeah, like Kathleen said, we've been in Kansas City a number of years, 13 years. Um, help give leadership to Luke 18 Project. Um, we love, love, love what we get to do. Um, I've been in college ministry good, you know, 20 years and with IHOP the past 13. And, um, you know, it's seriously one of our favorite, favorite joys is to get to be part of the house of prayer and to get to stand in the place of agreement with who God is and with what he wants to do both in our city, in our nation, in our generation. And um, I love, love, love Brad and Amy Stroop. Brad makes me laugh more than practically anybody. You know, he is, you know, silly beyond measure, but but deep, but a deep, deep well. And um, uh, I'm provoked by Brad Stroop. And, and honestly, I'm here mostly because I love Brad. You know, I, I, I'm not necessarily in Dallas to, to come preach and speak, but I know that the staff were away. And Brad's like, hey, I'm going to be gone. 
Um, and uh, so out of love for Brad, uh, I'm here with you guys, though I love you guys too, just not as much as I love Brad. So I'm just kidding. I'm half kidding. So um, tonight, uh, Brad asked me, he kind of gave me a range of topics, and I'm like, um, and um, I'd love tonight just to talk about weakness, if that's okay. Um, and so if you need a title, Power of Voluntary Weakness. And um, you know, this is a message that I, I like but don't love in the sense that I, I deeply agree with the message, but, but the practice of it is hard and it is painful. Um, and so I'm mostly preaching it to you and not to me. I'm just kidding. Um, no, this is very much for me as it is for anybody. And so I just preach it with, with um, mild cringing because I know that, you know, it's accountability as I, as I share. So just a little bit of my story. Um, I'm originally from California, San Francisco of origin, um, and I went to college at a school called the University of California, Berkeley, um, which is um, you know, probably one of the more liberal schools around, and um, when I went to Berkeley in the 90s, um, uh, Berkeley was a little bit more... Um, Berkeley, you know, was called Berserkly in large part because of the, the protest culture and just many people, you know, gathering campus and protesting different things. And, um, you know, it's kind of a changing day now. Berkeley was where the free speech movement got birthed in the 70s. For you guys who are, who are older than me, um, you might remember the free speech movement, you know, students would protest the Vietnam War. And, and you know, wildly, we're 50 years later, and I think we're living in a day where we're seeing kind of the ending of the free speech movement. Right, free speech isn't so free anymore, and and you know we can say a lot of things, but if you say things that are out of bounds, you may get canceled. You know, and um, you may have heard of just some of the things that have been happening on YouTube and Amazon, and people say the things that you know are unpopular or controversial, and they get canceled. You know, and so um, so so now at Berkeley, you know, and many other college campuses, just saying, you know, like if if you if you say things that are contrary to the public narrative, especially if you're saying, you know, the Bible says this about our lives. You know, the Bible says this about what holiness is and, and what righteousness is. Like that, that can be considered hate speech in, in, in our modern day. And it's, it's just a wild time we're living in where, you know, if, if you say things that are considered out of bounds, um, it could be construed as you're out of bounds and we really don't want you and we don't want your voice and we kind of don't want you to exist. You know, and so we're living in, in, you know, just a very, you know, we're living in a day that is, um, you know, the, the voice of many is is no longer welcome if it doesn't agree with a certain perspective. And so anyway, um, that's where I came from, Berkeley, and we've been Kansas City now, you know, many years. Um, but my life got deeply marked when I was a student. You know, I got saved um, at the campus of Berkeley and. Um, when I was a student, I, it was one of the things that we encountered there was just this resistance, this hostility that if you were a Christian and you believed in absolute truth and you held to the scriptural truth of the Bible, like there was just this sense that we were, you know, foolish that we were intolerant, that we were bigoted, you know, that, because if we thought that, that this book contained absolute truth, that it trumped every other, every other source of knowledge and understanding. And, that, and we said truly, the Bible is, is supreme in what capital T truth is. 
And, and just, you know, I remember as a student just wrestling. I'm like, so if I'm a Christian and I believe in the absolute authority of Scripture, then every other source of knowledge and information is really secondary. And, and um, I remember just, you know, my friends and I, you know, back in the day, we, we would listen to the Ravi Zacharias. If you guys know anything about, you know, he died recently, and it's just a really hard and painful story. Um, but we would listen to Rabbi, he was this apologist, and I mean, just wrestling through, you know, the why of the why of what we believe, you know, just wrestling through just, you know, like um, the apologetic or, you know, just the understanding, you know, the, the, the basis of why we believe that God is God, the Bible is truth, and, and really just a defense for our faith. And, and um, you know, in all that, you know, my conviction, my, my conviction coming out of, you know, my years at Berkeley is that God loves foolish things. You know, I, I used to aspire to be really smart and really erudite and be really learned. I, I would hear, you know, smart guys like Ravi Zacharias or John Piper. I love John Piper. You know, I, I was a student of John Piper when I was younger and just, just these really brilliant guys. And when they taught and when they spoke, I, I would just marvel. I'm like, wow, you know a lot about the word of God, about, you know, like life and culture and society. And, and there's this part of me that like, I want to be like one of those really smart guys. You know, I want to say profound things and sound really intelligent. And the longer I've been a Christian, the more I'm convinced that it's not about being strong or brilliant or powerful or, you know, just really, you know, the things that the culture celebrates. And, um, and, and today, I, you know, if there's anything that, that I want to communicate and say, is that there is this beauty and this power and weakness that is so contrary to the way of the world. You know, the way of the world wants to celebrate the person that has the most influence, the most money, the most followers on, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, you know, uh, Twitter. And we look up to the people that have more, right? Like, we look up to the person that has the megachurch, you know? Like, you know, in town here, we, you know, it would be Gateway and, you know, and, um, or Upper Room or whatever ministry that, you know, like, seems like, yeah, they, they got it going on. Or we look up to, you know, like, the billionaire, you know, Elon Musk or, you know, the guy that owns the Mavericks. You know, I forget his name right now, you know? And, and we celebrate these people and we want to read their stories. You know, there's a recent documentary on Michael Jordan. People were really fascinated by it because he was a goat, right? Not the animal with the long chin, but, you know, greatest of all time, right? You might argue, you might say it's Kobe O'Brien, you know. Um, I, I'm not a basketball guy, you know, maybe Sean can tell you more, but I just know that, you know, there are these legends that people really celebrate, like Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and others, um, or LeBron, if you're, you know, a LeBron fan. Um, but, but the reality of it is, is that the Lord's not looking for goats. He's not looking for the greatest of all time, you know? He's not looking for the, for the spiritual giants, right? Like, history isn't changed by spiritual giants. History is changed by the, the normal, the ordinary, the son or the daughter 
that's fully surrendered, fully yielded, embracing voluntarily just this reality called weakness, right? And so, so let, me just, um, let me just dive into um, weakness real quick. Um, I'll give you a couple of illustrations. Um, so how many of you guys like superheroes? Anybody into Marvel, right? I mean, if you're not, it's kind of everywhere, you know? Um, by the way, I love all the kids around. You know, feel free to make lots of noise, kids. I am so pro-kid. I have three kids. I, got, I mean, my kids aren't so little. They're 11, 10, 8, and, um, and we were always trying to get our kids to be quiet, and I just realized, yes, I love that. Um, you know, like, kids are meant to make noise, so feel free to be free, run, you know, according to your parents. And so, <laughs> so, um, but um, superheroes, yes. Um, so, so there's Marvel. Some of you guys like Marvel. Then there's DC. It's a little dark, you know. DC is kind of, you know, edgier. Um, but we love superheroes in our culture. We, I mean, like Disney just spent billions of dollar, dollars buying Marvel. And, um, and they do that because our culture loves, loves, loves the idea of superhuman strength, right? And your ability to do things that are out of the ordinary and, you know, with your mind and with, you know, you can like walk through walls and fly and, you know, laser and, you know, and so much of it is that we have this fascination with power and this fascination with strength, right? Um, this place, you know, our capital, Washington, D.C., um, you know, it's, it's the headquarters of our government, if you didn't know that. Um, you know, it's, it's the power center of our nation. And, and it's the place where, you know, if you're, if you think about it, what it takes to be the president of the United States, it's not for the average Joe Schmo, right? I mean, you know, to be the president, you have to be a pretty ambitious guy. And you have to have, you know, a pretty high view of yourself and what you can do. And there's this, there's this term called Potomac fever. Have you guys ever heard of it, Potomac fever? Potomac is a river that, that crosses uh, the border between Virginia and Maryland, and DC is, is right on that river. And the Urban Dictionary, you know, it's a dictionary of words that are not real words, but they're kind of cultural terms. It defines it this way, that Potomac fever is a disease peculiar to the greater Washington, D.C. metro area that presents chiefly as an intense desire in the infected to be associated with power and prestige. Associated symptoms include acts of extreme obsequiousness, I think it means flattery, deference, um, to those in power likely to be in power. It's interesting. So if you think about it, if, if you realize just now the person sitting next to you was a billionaire, would you see them at all a little different? You know, or if you realize that their grandfather, you know, or they're related to, you know, someone who's really influential or really powerful, right? And my submission to you is that in the kingdom of God, it doesn't work that way. That God doesn't love the wealthier more, the powerful more, the influential more. If anything, like, like if we actually saw people through the eyes of heaven, heaven loves and celebrates and is moved by the weakest of people, right? That there is a power and a beauty in weakness that is so contrary to the way the culture sees, 
right? You know, when we think of Mother Teresa, you know, I think there's a certain celebration of Mother Teresa in our culture because she did kind of what was unthinkable. She had this ministry to the dying, right? She was caring for those who were about to die, and she was helping to minister to them in their last days. And everyone says, that's so noble because you're building a ministry that is constantly losing people, right? And she was just doing this real sacrificial thing. And, and I tell you, you know, our lives, you know, I'm 41, you know, and presumably I'm like, you know, I've lived, you know, people would say, you know, in your 40s, you're at, you're, you're, you know, people are experiencing their midlife crisis, right? And I love being 40. I'm, I have to say, being 40 is way better than being 30 and way better than being 20, you know? So for you guys who are 20 years old, you know, I, I feel like your 20s is it's just a season where... I, my biggest question in my 20s was, like, who am I and where am I going? And honestly, most of what I learned in my 20s is who I'm not, right? You know, you hear Mike Bickle and you hear Lou Engle and Lauren Cunningham and just these giants. And, and you hear Mike and all of a sudden you want to be an Anna, you know, and you want to you know, spend your days ministering to the Lord. You hear Lou Engle, you want to be a Nazarite, you know. And you hear Lauren Cunningham and you want to go to the unreached people groups of the earth. And I just remember in my 20s feeling like, wait, am I an Anna or am I a Nazarite or am I, you know, a Nashrite or am I, a, you know. And I felt like most of my 20s was realizing I'm not Missy Edwards and I'm not Alan Hood and I'm not, you know, a, you know X, Y, and Z. And you know, a lot of my 30s was figuring out just getting comfortable in my own skin, you know, just feeling like, you know, just learning to enjoy me, enjoy Thai lamb and my frame as the father enjoyed me. And uh, I, I remember, you know, um, if you guys know Dana Candler, she's um, one of our teachers in Kansas City. Uh, she once said this that just really impacted me. She said, when you are struggling and on your worst day and feeling so incredibly weak, in that moment, just lift your eyes where your help comes from and just pause and behold his delight in you. And just in the day where you feel like doo-doo, right? You feel like barely saved. You're just struggling to not sin. And you're just a wreck. You're just feeling emotional and you're feeling condemned. In that moment, you just pause and say, Lord, enjoy me right now. That, that our paradigm that we're most enjoyed by God when we're anointed, when we're fiery, when we're fasting, when we're doing these crazy, powerful exploits, when we're on the mic praying heaven and fire down, when we're singing that oracle that's prophetic and we're feeling like it's, you know, it's the, the heart of heaven for someone in the room. Like, we think that those are the times that we're most enjoyed by heaven. And I mean, it's so upside down. But when we're the weakest and when we have nothing to give and we choose to lift our eyes to where our help comes from, we say, Lord, I need you. Oh, God, I have nothing but you. I am, I am just trying to live for you right now. And when we just turn our heart to him and when we're just calling upon his name, like we have this thought that somehow we're furthest from God and God is so far from us in that moment. But when we call on his name in our weakness, I tell you, it does not take a lot for him to be so near to us. 
That, I mean, when, when you and I struggle, he's not like, you know, when Sean's just having a bad day and he's just grumpy and angry, you know, which I'm sure never happens. You know, the Lord, when Sean's, you know, about to do something, say something stupid, the Lord's not like, oh, Sean, I can't believe you. How could you? The Lord's not like miffed and surprised when he sees us in our weakness. If anything, you know, the Lord is so intimately aware, he's more aware than you are, of your stuff. And even though he knows all your junk, all that junk in your trunk, and that's not about your anatomy, right? Like, he knows your stuff, and yet he says, I like you so much, John. I so enjoy you on your hard day when you are in the prayer room and thinking about 10 other things, but that one moment that you call upon my name, oh, how much I enjoy your voice. I enjoy your song. Even though you can't sing like these people up here, I don't know if John, you can sing or not. <laughs> but like, I like it when you sing a little off key. It ministers to my heart, you know? And so we just have a paradigm that the Lord loves the anointed and the powerful, but I tell you, he so delights in you, in your weakness. Look, if you and I have eyes to see the beauty of weakness, it will unlock the word of God to you. I mean, it will give you insight into who he is and what he's like, right? Look, let me give you just um, a, a little bit of history. Uh, when we look at redemptive history, right, the history of Scripture, the history of the Bible, it is the story of voluntary weakness and God's response and power, right? Let's start at the cross, right? The cross is a story of Jesus voluntarily choosing death, that the Father's resurrection power would be displayed. I mean, it's pretty wild. Of all the ways that God would move in history, the Lord desires and designs redemptive history around the Son of Man coming as the Son of a carpenter, living and dying a shameful criminal's death. And that in that, the Lord would manifest his power to shift the course of human history, to redeem the sinner, to become sons and daughters. Right? I mean, it's wild that the cross is about Jesus coming in humility and in weakness. And if you read Philippians 2, I mean, it's the story of God who has everything and voluntarily saying, I want to yield all the rights all the privileges of being God that I would come in the form of creation that I would show forth the beauty of humility, right? The gospel is, I mean, if you think about what the gospel is, it's that when we share our faith with someone, like we're voluntarily proclaiming a foolish message and we're saying to the person that does not know Jesus, this message of mercy and this message of grace so that God would manifest his power to save. We're basically saying, like, you don't know Jesus, but if you would believe on him who lived 2,000 years ago and that you would choose to surrender to him, I tell you, God wants to manifest his power to save and transform your life. I mean, it is pretty foolish if you think about it, right? 
I mean, like, for all of us, I mean, we made this choice, but, like, if you think about it for the mind of the person who does not know Jesus, I mean, it takes God to know God, right? The message of the gospel is, I mean, it, it is not... It is not, you know, Tony Robbins, you know, like live your best life now, right? It's not this great self-help improvement message on how to make your life better. It, it sounds mostly like, I mean, it's the message that says, like, you can't do anything to become all that you're meant to be. That you are a sinner and you will be stuck in a life of sin. It is who you are is what you do. And the only way out of that cycle of sin is by surrendering and believing on a message of a God who wants to meet you in your weakness and in surrender. Right? And salvation is, is us voluntarily saying, Lord, you raise your hands and you say, Lord, here I am. I am surrendering to you that you might demonstrate your power to make all things new, that you would heal broken things and make it whole. Worship is us voluntarily lifting our hands and surrender and singing of what he's done and who he is and what he's like and how much we need him. And in, I mean, there's this crazy reality. I, I think if you and I understood the significance and the power of what happens to us when we open our mouth and lift our hands and sing, all of us would be in this prayer room so much more than we do. Like if we actually had a revelation of what happens when we lift our hands to the Lord in surrender and what happens in us, right? Like we don't think about this often, but is worship for him or is it for us, right? Did the Lord give us worship because he desires that all creation would sing of who he is? Or did he give us worship because we need to be ones that are coming in to the revelation of who he is? I believe that, that I, mean, it, I mean, I think it's both. <laughs> it's a trick question, right? But, but there's a reality that you and I were made to worship. John Piper has this profound statement that says, missions exist because worship does not, right? Like, if you think about it, the reason why we go to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel is so that there would be the song of the Lord in the ends of the earth, that all the earth would sing of his glory, right? I mean, this is prophetic of you know, Malachi 1.11, you know, from the rising of the sun and the setting, there will be incense that would arise, right? And Habakkuk 2, you know, that, that, that like the waters cover the earth, that truly his glory, right? The song of his glory would cover the earth, right? But, but there's this, this wild reality that when we, when we voluntarily lift our hands in this state, in this posture of surrender, saying, Lord, I need you. And we sing these songs over and over again. We sing, Lord, I am desperate for you. How I need you. How faithful you are. How good you are. When we sing these songs, something is happening in us. It's actually some of the best discipleship that you'll experience is opening your mouth, lifting your hands, and singing these songs, right? Like there's something happening in you that's getting reprogrammed, right? That, that as we day in and day out sing the songs of worship and surrender to him, that we're actually being renewed, that we're actually growing in likeness, that we're actually becoming more like him, 
right? And prayer. Last one. We, uh, prayer, when you look at prayer, prayer is us voluntarily expressing our desperate need, our dependence, our desire for God so that he would express his desire and his purposes through us, through his family, through sons and daughters on the earth, right? Like when you look at redemptive history, I mean, it is the story of voluntary weakness. It's saying, Lord, I choose to volunteer strength and embrace weakness. So if there's voluntary weakness, there's got to be some involuntary weakness, right? So what's an involuntary weakness? You know, a couple of things. I mean, sickness, right? Anyone, anyone have had COVID before? Experience COVID? Yeah. I, um, I shouldn't raise my hand. I haven't. Um, um, but, but most of us don't choose COVID, right? Anyone, anyone choose COVID? No. Do you guys remember? Has anyone old enough to remember chicken pox parties? Yeah, chicken pox parties, right? So as a kid, you know, like some families would say, you know, when someone has chicken pox, they invite all their friends over and say, hey, let's all get chicken pox together, right? And so if you don't know what this I'm talking about, this might gross you out a little bit, right? So, so if my kid had chicken pox, you know, I'd be like, hey, Castlin, you know, all the friends with kids, come to our house. Our kids got chicken pox. We're going we're gonna to have one um, dum-dum, one, not popsicle, one um, lollipop. <laughs> Like, what's the thing you put in your mouth as a candy on top? We'll pass this lollipop around. So my son will lick it, and he'll pass it around. So everyone will get chicken pox. I'm sorry. Is it, Crystal, are you traumatized right now? Sorry. And so it was a thing. Because the idea is that once you get it, you know, you're, you're, you're inoculated for life, right? That's not happening with COVID, I hope, right? And so if that were, you would probably get in a lot of trouble. Um, you'd be a super spreader event, right? And so, but most of us aren't choosing, you know, I want to get COVID. If you do, it's quite involuntary, right? For others, it's poverty, right? I mean, most of us aren't choosing to be poor, right? I mean, if you're struggling financially, I mean, you're trying to unstruggle financially. You're trying to, you know, get out of that. But some of us are, are I was born into a family that was not well off financially. And, you know, we were on welfare and we experienced a lot of financial hardship and we lived, you know, in poverty. And, and, and that was quite involuntary. You know, another would be a disability, you know, for those who, who have, you know, a physical disability, learning disability. You know, we don't choose it. it it's part of, you know, like in, in, the, in the order of things, like some, you know, grew up with certain challenges physically. You know, others is discrimination, you know. None of us choose to be discriminated, right? If you grew up, you know, an ethnic minority, and you felt different or you felt you grew up and you grew up female and not male in certain places you felt you know discriminated against and so there's these realities of involuntary weakness that none of us choose but even in those things these involuntary weaknesses as well as the I'll tell you this if you grew if you've experienced involuntary weakness count it joy count it gift right because there's something the Lord is forming in us in the weakness that, that, that is not possible to form in the strong. And I would say that, I would flip it and say this, you know, for the things that make you feel really strong, the things that make you feel powerful, I would say beware. Be suspect of the things that make you feel great, right? And, and be attracted to the things that when you feel weak, that in that place of weakness, it's opportunity, right? That when you feel most weak, 
and you choose to turn from the weakness and the struggle and the wrestle and the discrimination and the pain and the sickness and, and the things that, that, are, that feel like affliction and you choose to say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I choose you. Lord, in this, I want to be found leaning on you. I tell you, there's something happening and being formed in you that is so, so significant. 2 Corinthians 12. I love and hate this verse. Paul's good at just, I mean, he's good at making the hard things sound so good. But when you live it out, you're like, oh, I hate this. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. I love the grace is sufficient for you part. Like, I'm like, yes and amen. Thank you that your grace helps me in all circumstance. But the part that says my power is made perfect in weakness, it sounds awful. I want God's power to be made perfect in my talents, in my giftings, and in my good looks. And I mean, in all the things that I think are a gain, I want to hide all my weaknesses. And you know, I want to make sure that you don't see my weaknesses. And I want to make sure that you see the best of me. And I want God to manifest his power through the best of me. But somehow he loves to manifest. And really that his, his power is made perfect when we are most weak. And you know, I, that should be really encouraging for the normal and the average person, right? Because oftentimes I look at like, you know, like, like the, you know, I spend a lot of time in front of people, talking to people, and you know, I'll see a guy like Lou Engel, and I'll hear Lou, I'm like, I can't preach. I'm like, I suck, you know? Like, I can't do that. And to know that honestly, like, Preaching has nothing to do with how good of a communicator you are, has so little to do with what we think is fiery, what we think is powerful, what we call anointed, honestly. Like, I mean, the point of preaching is merely me pointing to Jesus. If all I did was get up here and read the Bible to you and say, guys, we need to do this, right? That would be effective preaching. Like, you guys don't need funny stories to laugh, to cry, you know. But we, I mean, we enjoy it. We like, you know, I mean, we like Brad Stroop, right? Brad Stroop is funny, and he's so entertaining. But he's profound, right? But truly, at the end of the day, I can get up here and just say very little. And if I'm pointing at Jesus and saying, guys, in my weakness, know that Jesus is Like, that would be successful preaching, right? He goes on to say, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So for all of you non-singers out there, right, there's no excuse to not sing. I tell you, the Lord loves the singer that feels like they cannot sing, right? I used to, I used to, growing up, I had a speech impediment. When I was younger, I used to stutter. 
right? And you guys know what stuttering is, like stammering, where I couldn't say, you know, things easily. And, and, and even still, there's certain words that are hard for me to say. And, and so I wouldn't like to speak in front of people. Like it was, I just felt just deeply insecure. I just would feel like I don't want to be caught in front of people all of a sudden not able to say something and stuck on my words, right? And, you know, I got saved when I was 18, and then, you know, I am going to ministry, and I'm like, surely I'm not called to be a preacher, you know? I, I want to be like Misty Edwards, right? I want to be like, what's your name? Yeah. Sherry. Sh I mean, Sherry is anointed, right? And, and I, I love, you know, Sherry has a physical disability, and she's in a wheelchair, but like, I bet the Lord so loves her offering with, in, in Sherry's weakness, her offering is beautiful to the Lord, right? And I just remember getting saved, and I'm like, I want, I want to be like Sherry. I want to minister to the Lord. And so I love worship. I mean, I studied music in college and played all these instruments, and, and I'm like, I want to be like Misty Edwards, and I would do it, and you know, I just, I mean, it was, I love worship. I love to worship. I love to be in worship. I love to sing, but honestly, I'm actually not that good, right? It, it's, it's, I love it. I'm not that good, and, um, and along the way, I just remember the first time I was asked to preach at something. I'm like, no, I'm just not called to preach. I'm like, I, I'm like, you know, like how Paul says, you know, he, you know, Moses had you know, anger issues. Paul had, you know, his issues, and and and, you know, I just felt like I, I'm not, I'm not, I struggle saying words. So if I struggle saying words, I probably shouldn't be a preacher, right? And I just remember the first time I preached it, I just felt like, I just felt like I had nothing to say. I felt like, I, I mean, I just felt boring and unanointed and just weak. And people would tell me, oh, that was so good. That was so powerful. I'm like, no, that's because you're my friend. That's, that's what you're supposed to say, it's, you know, because I just started, it's my first time preaching. You're saying that because you don't make me feel better, right? It'll happen again, and they'll be like, you know, I would get up and I'd share something, and they're like, oh, that really impacted me. I'm like, no, that, that's, that's, you know, like, I, this is not my gig. You know, I'm just doing this because, you know, I'm in ministry, I'm supposed to. And, and just over the years, you know, I just realized, like, I don't need to be Lou Engle or Alan Hood or Mike Bickle. And, and there's something about you and I like embracing the frame the Lord's given us. And in our weakness and in our lack, like we don't need to be Misty Edwards or Mike Bickle, like to be able to be found faithful in what he's given us, to be able to be fruitful in the ministry he's called us to. You know, I love this ministry. I, I, I love this prayer room. You know, like when you look at this prayer room, you're not thinking like, gosh, this prayer room is the it place to be, right? Like this prayer room is not, you know, I mean, it's, this is not a fair comparison, you know, but down the street, upper room, you know, people are really excited about upper room and Michael Miller and, you know, Joel Figueroa and Alyssa, you know, and their people are excited and they have a big live stream and people are really excited about it. And it's anointed. It's great. But I tell you, like, I wonder how much happens in the kingdom of God, how much happens in Dallas, Texas, because Sherry was here in this room ministering to the Lord and agreeing with his heart. I don't think you have to be famous and powerful and anointed. I mean, I love Joel Figueroa and Alyssa Smith. Gosh, I mean, blesses me a ton. But I tell you, the worship leaders in this room, you know, the ones who are doing, you know, like the 5 a.m. prayer meetings, like, what has God done 
because Brad Stroop set his heart to be in this room at 5 a.m., right? I mean, we just don't know, right? Who knows what God does because you said yes in weakness? A few of us choose to embrace this lifestyle of voluntary weakness. You know, I mean, it looks like tithing, right? How many guys love tithing? You know, it's like, uh, I love the blessing of tithing, you know? I mean, it's the reality of like, we choose to live on less, right? Like, how many guys love Sabbath? I, I, I kind of like to rest, but I don't really like to rest when I'm really busy, right? When I have a lot to do and taking a day off in the midst of having a lot to do, it feels like, gosh, I really need to get stuff done, right? Fasting, anyone love fasting? Right? I'm not raising my hand. I'm just saying if, for the person who, who does love fasting, this is what you would do, you know, which is no one in this room, right? I mean, we all love like the intimacy we experience and hearing God's voice, but none of us are like, I love to skip meals. I love to not eat, right? Especially when, I mean, I don't know why, but whenever you're fasting, like it's when everyone cooks the best meals, right? It's when the grilling happens and the birthday cake happens and you know the homemade, you know, like chantilly vegan, whatever your choice of, you know, like enjoyable treats are. I'll tell you this: not everybody can be a fivefold prophet or apostle or you know whoever it is that's your hero, but anybody can choose to live a lifestyle of voluntary weakness. So that the power of God can manifest through their lives, right? Most of us are not called to be Mike Bickle, are called to be, you know, like Todd White, are called to be, you know, whoever it is that you're like, that's the man of God, the woman of God I want to be like. But honestly, any one of us can live a life such that you that you live with a target on your chest, that you live in such a way that when you are loving, ministering, serving, pouring out, praying, standing in agreement, believing for breakthrough, that your life is a conduit for the power and the purposes of God. You don't need to be Brad Stroop to walk in authority. You don't need to be, you know, whoever it is, Todd White, to see the lost get saved, right? You don't need to be Alyssa Smith to be able to just minister the heart of God in worship. Voluntary weakness is really the posture and the lifestyle of surrender. The more we can surrender earthly pleasures, the more we can walk in heavenly realities. Okay? All right. Um, let me give you four things that never go out of style. Right? I, I, I heard... I, I wish I knew this when I was 20, right? Like, I wanted some other things when I was 20, but I tell you, these four things, if you can aim for these four things, so, so valuable, okay? Here are the four. Number one, character, right? Character is really the journey of surrendering shortcuts so that we develop the muscle of integrity. Right, Romans 5 talks about just what it takes to have proven character, right? Like, most of us don't realize, like, the value of character. We like the value of charisma, right? We like the value of personality. But I tell you, if you have character, right, if you surrender, taking shortcuts, character is this. Character is when you do the right thing, even when no one's watching. I tell you, 
like, especially for you guys who are young, like learn the value of doing the right thing even when no one's watching, right? Because when you're 30 and when you're 40 and you're 50 and you have influence and people are entrusting you with money, entrusting you with, with you know, just responsibilities, like you will not self-sabotage you know, because I don't know how many stories you hear about, you know, like people out there with money and they're getting in trouble because they didn't do their taxes right and they did this and that, you know. Like we wanna be ones that have surrendered the shortcuts and do things the right way and the hard way because God sees. Number two is intimacy. We wanna surrender the walls. We wanna surrender the, the dividing walls that, that protect us, right? The boundaries so we can get vulnerable, get close to each other. Family. We want to surrender the independence that we would form and grow and need connection with people. And number four is anointing. It's surrendering our own strength so that, so that we can have and move in God's strength. Character, intimacy, family, anointing. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel 1. This is where we'll end. I love the story of Daniel. Is, is this okay? This is helpful, hopefully. I'm preaching to me, so if you get something out of it, great. This is mostly <laughs> because I need to grow in this, and so hopefully you guys are along for the ride. You know, I'm, I'm, Mike Bickle, um, you guys know Mike, you know, he used to tell me this thing that just I thought was the weirdest thing ever. Mike would say this. <laughs> it sounds so vain. Mike would tell me, I am my favorite teacher. Have any of you guys heard Mike say that before? Okay, it's really bizarre, right? I'm like, Mike, that's like you shouldn't say that, right? It just sounds really proud, right? But like the longer I've taught, the more I realize it's actually really profound. Because what Mike's saying is not that, that he likes his teaching better than he likes, you know, like John MacArthur and John Piper and, and other smart guys. What he's saying is that like when you teach what happens is you actually end up being the one who gets the most out of it, right? Like, I, I tell you, this message, I mean, I, I, we say it in a pithy you know, way, and we're joking a little bit, but I tell you, I'm really the one who's getting the most out of this message, you know, because, because like the one who teaches is the one who has to really study, prepare, you know, and so, so it is honestly to my benefit that I'm teaching this. And so, so really, if you get something out of it, praise God, you know. So Daniel 1. So familiar passage. I, I love this story. Um, you know, it's, it's a story of these youths, right? Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. You know, Israel has, has been, you know, captured. You know, they're experiencing the judgment of God. They're, there's a whole group of them that have been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, right? Okay. Daniel 1.1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. Right? Babylon of that day would be like Washington, D.C. It was the capital, it was the capital of, um, of that empire. It was the power center of that nation where competition, ambition, pursuit of power, influence was normal. Right? Verse 3, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Right? Everybody say Ashpenaz. So, so poor Ashpenaz. You guys know what a eunuch is? 
And so it, it, there's a bio, a eunuch is someone that serves in the king's court, someone of influence. But the way you become a eunuch is you have, you know, I mean, before the before the days of gender fluidity, right, and and where people voluntarily chose to to have a mutilating surgery. This is where in in climbing the in climbing the ladder of the royal court, like there's ones who would say. In order to be in place of influence, I will allow you to mutilate, you know, a sexual organ of mine so that I cannot have kids. So that I can be trusted to be close to the king because I cannot have kids. So I might so I would not take advantage of my place of influence and try to overthrow or usurp authority, and then my kids can be the future king. Does that make sense? Did I explain that okay? It's a little weird, right? So, so that's what eunuch is. If you didn't know, I'm so sorry that I, I told you um, that was not PG. Um, but, but so eunuch was someone that climbed the ladder of influence. And, ha and, and when you're the chief eunuch, you, you not only climb the ladder, you climbed it well, right? And so you're you know, at the top of the pecking order, right? So Ashpenaz, chief eunuch, um, he was put in charge of this, uh, of this group, right? And so... Um, here's another question. Uh, why, why would Nebuchadnezzar bring the youth of an exiled nation into his court, right? I, I believe that Nebuchadnezzar had this long-term, this long, this long play discipleship strategy of the next generation that he wanted to disciple and inculcate the next generation of leaders, of uh, next generation of Jewish leaders into the culture and the values of Babylon. Right? It's very similar to how, you know, if you've been on a college campus, Red Bull is, you know, there will be, you know, these, these Red Bull ambassadors on a college campus and they'll walk around with this backpack and it's like a little backpack cooler kind of, you know, pre-Yeti and it was shaped like a Red Bull and, and I don't know why, but they usually choose ambassadors who, you know, are especially, you know, skinny and good looking and very charismatic and they're trying to sell Red Bull, not by money, but but they're trying to give away Red Bull so that the 18-year-old and 22-year-old develops an appetite for Red Bull, right? I mean, have you ever had it? It tastes terrible, right? So, I mean, but they're trying to convince the young person that Red Bull is awesome. So, so they send someone that's good-looking and, you know, out there on this, like, marketing campaign, right? And so in a similar way, Nebuchadnezzar is bringing the next generation of Jewish leaders of a conquered people into his court. So they learn to enjoy and love the culture and the language and the ways of Babylon, right? Verse four, that the king is commanding Ashpenaz to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family, royal, uh, royal family and the nobility, youths in whom was no defects, who were good looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court, all right? Like, this basically was, was him choosing the best and the brightest, you know, of the next generation of Jewish leaders and bringing them to the Harvard of Babylon, right? And, and, and for Nebuchadnezzar, he only had eyes for beauty, for talent, he was looking for the for the for the most gifted, the most you know good looking, the ones who would in the natural have influence, right? And and so, 
Verse 4, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. At the end of, the three, end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So really interesting. I mean, they're basically going to college, right? I mean, these are, you know, like teens. They're being recruited. They're going to go to three years of the University of Babylon. And when it says the literature and language of the Chaldeans, it does not mean, you know, Socrates and Plato and Shakespeare, right? I mean, like, this literature was training to become a magician and an enchanter in the king's court. I mean, it was basically sorcery and, and mystical Babylonian, you know, like, witchcraft. And so this was the school of witchcraft, right? And so they were recruiting the best and the brightest of Israel to join the University of Babylon to major in Babylonian witchcraft. Yes, following? And so part of the education was, was to live in the king's court, to eat the king's food, and to drink the wine that he drank. So, so, so why is he doing all this, right? He's wanting to dull their resistance by winning their appetite for the Babylonian life of comfort, right? Like he's basically wanting them to be so drunk on the, the life of comfort in Babylon, the life of privilege, that when it came to resisting just the unrighteous things, that they would have no capacity because they've been so dulled. Verse six, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Really interesting, right? So not only are they bringing them in, they're renaming them. That part of their ambition was not just to change their appetite, it was to shift their identity. It was to change their identity and shift their destiny, right? So you know the name Daniel, any, any Daniels in the room? Daniel means God is my judge. That's a pretty epic name, right? It's a great name for a foreigner. Um, but he gets changed to Belteshazzar. You guys know what that means? It means lady, protect my king. Isn't that interesting? Like we think gender confusion's new, like it started right there, right? Like Daniel became, you know, of the feminine name, you know, like, um, and basically, instead of God being my judge, he's, his name becomes Lady Protect My King. It, it really confuses the fearing of God to fearing man. Hananiah, his name meant Yahweh has been gracious. And he gets renamed Shadrach, which means I am fearful of God. I am scared of God. The confusion of a good God to, to a bad God. Mishael, his name meant who is what God is. He gets renamed Meshach, which means I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. Is that rough? Like confusing confidence and condemnation. And Azariah means Yahweh has helped. And he gets renamed Abednego, which means ser servant of Nebo, right? So he goes from, from a relationship with Yahweh to the religion of Nebo. So verse 8. Daniel purposed in his heart, he resolved, he made up his mind that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's choice food, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of eunuchs that he might not defile himself. What did Daniel realize? 
It's really interesting, right? I mean, he's, he is a captive, privileged slave. He gets brought into this life of privilege, right? I mean, I would think that, that one like Daniel would realize that he's not... He's not living, you know, where he has to do labor camps and build, you know, the next pyramid for Nebuchadnezzar. Like, I mean, he had five-star fine dining, three meals a day, and his job is to sit in a classroom, right? And, and if you can imagine, I mean, for the other, like, Jewish slaves that were in the situation, I mean, like, Daniel's basically saying, like, Ashpenaz, like, I know that you're supposed to give me all this fancy, you know, wine and caviar and stuff. But like, can you, can you like forego all that and give me Brussels sprouts and celery? And Ashton, I can imagine thinking like, are you stupid? Like anyone would trade with you for the spot. You're getting to get a full ride to Babylonian Harvard and to live in the fanciest dorm and eat the best of foods. Why are you wanting to do this? And, and if you can imagine his friends, they're thinking like, Daniel, you are so stupid. You are so foolish. You're rocking the boat. You're not just ruining it for you, but you might ruin it for all of us, right? So he's getting judged by his peers and they're all thinking like, what is up with this guy? He is so foolish. And and so Daniel, I mean, he, like, he's saying that he doesn't want to defile himself with the food of Babylon. What was his revelation? Like he wasn't concerned about sitting in these classrooms, right? Learning witchcraft. But he was concerned about the food that he was eating. I believe that, that Daniel had a revelation that you become what you consume. That what you watch, what you listen to, what you eat, like it is changing you. Right, So that as we behold him and his beauty, as we listen to his voice, as we consume his word, that there's actually a discipleship connected to what we eat. There's this verse in Isaiah 7. I mean, it's this, it's this messianic prophecy. It's profound. You have to turn. I'll read it to you. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse evil and choose good. It's a wild prophecy, right? It's a prophecy of Jesus, you know, from like 600 BC and says there will be a day where this virgin will get pregnant, right? It'll be a sign. She'll be a virgin, gets pregnant. It'll be Emmanuel, the son of God with us. And the testimony of this child will be that he'll eat curds and honey. And in what he eats, it will be so that he may know and learn to refuse evil and choose good. Did you get that? The, the prophecy of Jesus is that he would grow in learning to refuse the illegitimate pleasures and learn to choose righteousness by what he ate. That there is a discipleship connected to Jesus learning to refuse evil and to choose good, right? That, that some of what us choosing voluntary weakness is, is learning to learning to refuse the legitimate pleasures so that we have the capacity to refuse the illegitimate pleasures. Does that make sense? So that we can skip 
you know, the meats and the sweets so that we can resist the pornography and the lust. So God grants Daniel favor, verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see you that you are worse in condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Verse 12, test your servant for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables and eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food, so that the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So what happened here? Right? 10 days happens, right? He says, let me fast for 10 days and we'll see what happens. Well, after 10 days, he's fatter. He looks better. You know, he's, he, you know, and visibly there's a miracle that happens. Somehow he does better on, you know, bless you, Castlin. Um, they're great. Yes. Bless you, Cohen. I have a Cohen too. So I, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit favoring. Um, but but Daniel here, like, he basically experienced this little miracle that he does better on Brussels sprouts and carrots and peas than his peers that had lobster tail and, you know, faux de gras and filet mignon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, he looked like he, you know, like ate really well. And so basically, like, this was a little bit of a sign that launched these guys into a three-year Daniel fast, right? Like 10 days of foregoing meats and sweets was the catalyst for them going into a three-year fast through college, where they said, I want to not enjoy some of the legitimate pleasures of food and meats and sweets so that I would have an appetite for holy things. You know, in verse 17, uh, the testimony after three years was that these four youths God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of Cyrus, King Cyrus. What happened? Daniel and his friends chose voluntary weakness and became a bullseye for heaven. Right, And when you fast forward to the book of Daniel, the end of the book of Daniel is, I mean, Daniel at 83, 84 becomes this guy who had cultivated this lifestyle of voluntary weakness so that at, in his 80s, the testimony of his life is that he is one that is a friend of heaven, that he is beloved inside of heaven. And he, as, as a foreigner, shifts history with his voice, right? And you guys know the story. All right, we'll end with a couple, two verses I'll give you. Second Chronicles 16. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, and to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. 
I love this picture that, that truly that God's eyes are searching across the earth, that he's looking for the young man, the young woman, the old man, the old woman, whose heart is fully his so that he would show himself strong, that he would, that he would stand behind and show that he is with the young man, the young woman, whose heart is fully his, loyal to him. I believe that heaven is looking for targets. Heaven is looking for ones that would be this magnetic reality between heaven and a surrendered and yielded heart. Last verse I'll give you guys. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were called. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore it is written that him who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. How many of you guys want to be in that category of the foolish things and the weak things and the lowly things and the despised things? Like I've, in my natural mind, like I want to avoid the lowly, the weak, the despised things. I want to run from the hard. I want to embrace the easy. I want to be seen as awesome and great. But I tell you, if that is my reward, is, is to be liked by people and to enjoy comfort and to live just my best life now and find that in the end, like I've lived shallow, not being found connected to God's heart and not having been fruitful in, in seeing my life bear fruit to his glory, like I, it would all be such a waste. I don't want to be just, I don't want to be celebrated in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of heaven bankrupt. If we have eyes to see, we'll discover that weakness is wisdom. A life of voluntary weakness in how we spend our time, in how we spend our money, and how we eat our food, that we would have, that we would have an ambition that that we would voluntarily say, God, I want to choose a fasted lifestyle, right? You may have heard that phrase. I mean, it's a phrase that Mike Bickle really likes. It's a weird phrase. It's a hard phrase. But it's the idea that, that we want to live our lives fasted. We want to live our lives choosing to voluntarily live on less, live on less money, live on less prestige, live on less influence, that, that we would have our ambition as being influential in the courts of heaven, that we would have deep reality 
in intimacy, in character, in relationship, and that we would be ones that know him more and his power and his voice and his nearness to us, that those ambitions truly are the things that we're after, though the world looks at as so foolish. I believe that the gospel looks like us living our lives in such a way that our lives make absolutely no sense if God's not real. And our lives only make sense if Jesus is worth everything. Does that make sense? That when the world looks at your life, they're like, why do you spend hours a day in a room, in an empty room, singing to God that you cannot see out of a book that's 2,000 years old? Why do you give your money and extravagance to the poor and to these causes that will not bring an investment return to you? Why do you go days without eating food in hopes that somehow you're becoming a better person? And in all those things, the world would call it foolish. That, that they look at your life and they say, wow, what a fool. What a wasted life. The waste of the talent of resources, what you could do if you would apply yourself. And I tell you, that's called wisdom, that we would waste our lives before Jesus and say, Lord, here's the offering of my life. Or would you take my life and sow as a seed to be buried in the ground that it would produce a harvest of righteousness? Would we be okay if we are forgotten? By the end of our lives, no one remembers at the end of our lives, books aren't written about us. At the end of our lives, like we went and labored in a foreign country where no one knew us, but a few people got impacted. Would that be okay? But I tell you, like, the truest reality is our life before the eyes of heaven. It's what we do in secret. It's what we do when no one's watching. It's what we do before our king that truly those are the things that are of eternal reward. And the greatest riches that we have are the riches of the investment we've given to heavenly realities and not of this earth. But I tell you, the Lord desires. He desires the anointed. He desires the gifted, the talented, the guy with the 10 talents, the five talents, the one talents. But I think that, that in all this, his invitation to each of us is, will we surrender more? Will we choose? It's, it's, the, it's the prayer of John the Baptist. You know, it's John 3. It says, Lord, I must decrease that you might increase. Lord, would you allow me to be less that you would be more? Let's stand. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, we say here we are. Father, in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we count all things as loss. Father, we want to be a people that are living foolish and surrendered lives. Father, we want to live in such a way, we want to live wholehearted, lovesick, caught up 
Father, we want to live so heavenly minded. Father, that people see us, God, as ones that are so preoccupied with a heavenly reality, with a heavenly God, with one that is so worth it and beautiful, God. Father, would you let us, Father, would you anoint us, God, to love you? Father, would you, would you help us, God, that we would count the cost every day? today, tomorrow, the next day, that we would count the cost, God, that we would say that you are the one that we want to exchange our riches for, that we want to have more of you. We want to have a heart that's more tender. We want to have, God, greater confidence in your ways, greater faith, God, in what you're able to do. Father, we want your word to be so alive to us, God. We want your voice, God, thundering, Father, in our souls. We want our hearts to burn within us because we've heard the voice of our beloved. Father, we want to be like John the Baptist in our day, God, a forerunner. God, one that would stand listening to the voice of our beloved. That our joy is to hear your voice and our joy is to pour ourselves out. Father, let us be like Mary of Bethany, just pouring ourselves out at your feet and ministering to your heart, God. Let us be found, God, as foolish ones and as lowly ones, God, that we would give the strength of our days, the strength of our youth, the strength, <coughs> the strength of our lives, that we would be found in you. We say, come, Holy Spirit. Father, we say, here we are. We're asking God, give us vision. We're asking God, Father, give us vision. wisdom understanding that we would walk in a manner worthy of you God pleasing in your sight bearing in every good work God we know that you have purposed and called us to be fruitful that our lives poured out are meant to bring forth so much fruit to the glory of your name help us God This concludes this teaching from The Prayer Room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.